Have you seen me dice bag? <laughs> the Grognard Files. Hello, my name is Dirt the Dice, and this is the Grognard Files podcast talking bobbins about tabletop RPGs from back in the day. This, unbelievably, is the fourth part of episode six, which has been all about Dungeons and Dragons. I'm in that odd position where I'm beginning to regret the numbering system that I adopted. It's getting out of hand. Why didn't I just number them as I went along? Which would mean that this was the 13th episode. We've been going for almost a year. Well, this part of the episode is unlike the others, as it's a collection of the odds and sods that wouldn't fit in the other parts of the episode. Call it our footnotes, our Silmarillion, our unearthed arcana. It includes scraps that were tossed onto the cutting room floor to make space. A potted history of D&D was jettisoned. Who wants to hear that story again? Well, it turns out that some listeners missed the context setting that has been included in the previous episodes, so I dropped it in here for completeness. The main feature of this part of the podcast was sparked by a message. On the first day of 2016, this comment was posted on the grognardfiles.com. I'm 46, live in Southport, not far from Bolton, and like you, we used to play RPGs from the age of 12, many years ago through those long summers. And we've recently got back in touch with the old gang and doing a 5th edition D&D Old Scrote session once a month. Would you like to join sometime? Well, it was an offer we couldn't refuse. Ever since 1982, when we first began playing, we wanted more people to play with. We reached out for more via the small lads in White Dwarf, We were desperate to find other people to play with and we've been the same since we reformed in uh, 2010. It's that fear of missing out, a fear that there's always someone else having more fun than you are. Also, we're still in need of the affirmation that we're doing it right, whatever that means. So a chance to meet with other players that were not too far away was too much of a golden opportunity to miss. This episode introduces Rick and Tim from the Old Scrotes. Unlike us, they've been playing continuously since the 80s and able to give a perspective on the development of D&D during the period when we were in deep freeze. The interview is broken up, so the first part has some uh, RuneQuest chatterage. Tim played with John Quaif, a contributor to White Dwarf, and he tells his stories. The second part is a recount of some of the vast experience with D&D. And in the final section, they respond to some of the issues that have been raised in the podcast. This was recorded before we started putting out the AD&D episodes, so it's great to hear their alternative views. Rick puts up a spirited and convincing argument that clerics are actually the best character class. In future episodes, I'll be seeking out different voices and opinions about the games we cover. I know from my own experience of listening to other podcasts that it's always a risk of going stale if it isn't mixed up a bit. That said, 
Blythe's back to go through the bulging post bag so that we can reheat and rehash the same old bobbins that you've heard before, but this time inspired by readers' comments. Okay, ramblers, let's get rambling. Old Scrubs, part one. Okay, so I've uh, left Dirk Towers and taken to the road. I'm a Bolton Wanderer, if you like. Uh, and hit the road, come to uh, Southport, an idyllic Victorian seaside town in uh, northwest of England, um, where people usually come to retire. It's known in Bolton as God's waiting room. <laughs> but I've come to uh, Southport to meet the old Scrotes. So introduce yourselves, gentlemen. Hi, I'm Rick. I've been role playing for about thirty years, um, and I'm an old Scrote. <laughs> Uh, hi, I'm Tim. I've been role-playing for a horrible amount of 36 years. And um, likewise, I think yeah, I'm an old scroll probably. How did you find out about role-playing? How did you get into the hobby? Well, um, me and my mate Greg, we used to kind of paint Waterloo lead figures. And then on from that, we uh, moved on to the fantasy miniatures. And then he had found this thing called uh, the Fantasy Trip Melee, Melee, which was uh, basically a, uh, a two-foot square folded up um, he- hex sheet, hexy sheet, and he had little tiny kind of um, like hobgoblin cutout figures and things like that, and it was just like an arena-based kind of system, and that really got me into it, and then off from there, it was immediately onto RuneQuest. Um, I just used to spend hours just rolling characters. <laughs> <laughs> that was it. And just re-looking at the kind of RuneQuest and any supplement I could get a hold of, just soaking it all in kind of thing. As my brother will often tell me he regrets, uh, he was at college and he, he needed a, a Christmas present for my brother and I. And he found somebody selling the basic edition, the old red box of D&D, right. uh, which he bought for us. Um, it was 1979, Christmas off. And I was immediately hooked. Just uh, loved it. This whole idea of, of determining what you wanted to do first, you know, and, yeah. kind of following the book but not having to follow the book um, was amazing. And, and it, it, I, it just friends of mine gathered around. Eventually, I, I started reffing bits and pieces. Uh, but but D and D was the big wave, the big start. Yeah. That, that red box. Um, yeah, I think I think my brother uh, got a copy of RuneQuest. Was the next thing we got. Um, and that was a that was an iron program because again no levels, um, uh, but yeah got hooked on that again because it, it felt more realistic than the D and D as much as we like the D and D high the, fantasy the kind of Bronze Age um, yeah. high fan well not high but the Bronze Age fantasy kind of uh, Nordic feel to it almost in room yeah I, I, I just I just being able to play anything was quite. Um, you know, I didn't have to be an elf, I could be an elf, whatever. Yeah. Um, you know, I wasn't stuck in a character class or something. You know, it's a great universe, it's a great um, land. Um, Beautiful work behind it, lots of fan base stuff. Yeah, there's so much, you know, with the Lunars, uh, the Lunar Invasion and uh, Prax the way it is. Um, everything's detailed, the flora, the fauna. Beautiful stories. The cults, uh, you know, there's chaos, there's intrigue with the Lunars, obviously, again. Um, it's got it's everything there. So with this, you know, 
what she uses a yeah. tremendous and source. So have you played through some of the uh, classic uh, Glorantin campaigns? All of them. Yeah. All of them. <laughs> <laughs> yes, so everything from the beginning. Um, pretty much, I can't, yeah, I can remember we, we had every box set was going at one point. We've done the whole River of Cradles. Borderlands. Uh, Pavis, Duck, Big Rubble, Duck Tower, Duck Point, Griffin Mountain, as it was yeah. at the time. Um, oh, um, but gone orders past <laughs> Durasto. Oh, yeah. yeah, just just everything. I did, but like, as like you say, you know, the the uh, uh, the chance to sort of do uh, Borderlands with with um, John Quaid, who became a writer as one of the um, as a ref when I was living down south. So, so tell us about that then. So he's uh, he he's, uh, he he advertised locally uh, down in Crawley uh, for some players. We met up with John Quaife, uh and he said, "Yep, sure." Next thing we know, there's twenty players around a table in the scout hut. Um, how he did it, I have no idea. It must have been a nightmare. But he was he was kind of strict on the rules: who could talk when, where, how, to try and help move things along. But we did the Borderlands box set with his own editions with the whole Mariah thing that he wrote. Which became published and, and sort of went places. Because that, that appeared in uh, White Dwarf, didn't it? It appeared in White Dwarf, first of all, yeah. yeah, yeah. He, did, he, he got a couple of bits and pieces in there, if I remember rightly. Yeah. Um, he's, he was, uh, he's, uh, yeah, and still is, um, still running RuneQuest out there. Um, and good on him. Um, so, uh, so, so that was that was uh, an extension, wasn't it, of uh, one of the scenarios that's in yeah. uh, Borderlands? So yeah, was, the, he kind of expanded on it. Um, there was one scenario where basically like, you were meant to go off and fight a bunch of nasty uh, beastmen brew things. It, there was this whole idea of this um, young girl becoming their leader. And he just expanded on it. Um, and he wrote uh, some extra bits. The whole party ended up traipsing around the deserts of, Bor- of the Borderlands. Um, trying to track down how to kill her because she was uh, unkillable, or so it appeared, um, and was causing untold amounts of trouble. Um, and we had to work out what was going on. The whole party eventually got trimmed down to about the size of ten. With some, uh, I mean, some of the best players you could imagine. Just we we all kind of gelled. It was brilliantly done. Uh, there was some fantastic, exciting moments in it. And uh, my the first death of a character where where you have one of your characters die and go. That's the right way. That's <laughs> where that's where he needed to die. Um, I was glad he died there because it was you know, nice and heroic. It, it, it achieved everything we needed to do. So, so how did, how did um, that happen? There's a there's a particular part of the scenario uh, where you find out. Um, I don't want to give too much away, but you find out. <laughs> don't, don't worry. Yeah, <laughs> nobody's listening. Yeah, okay. Um, well, you find out where um, uh, these particular um, artifacts are keeping Mariah alive uh-huh. and stopping her from dying. Uh, and she's buried them right in the waste to the middle of nowhere. Um, but you find a way of getting there. Um, and with the help of Senna the Scribe, who was originally a, a mate man, John Burroughs' character, um, we, yeah, we, we found, the, found the hole itself. Uh, we had to go down there. When we first went down, it's a long flight of stairs. And if anybody knows RuneQuest, when I say at the bottom of this long flight of stairs were about six ghosts uh, and quite nasty ones. Ooh. And the whole party ended up having to do a run uh, ran back up the stairs, of course, the stairs quite slow. Um, we lost one party, two party, one or two party members to the ghosts getting getting possessed, but the rest of the party sort of got to the top of the stairs and thought, all right, okay, we're going to have to go down here. This is this is tricky. What we're going to do? Uh, and we decided that we only needed three of us. Um, the scribe needed to go down there, uh, and we needed a couple of others to sort of protect the scribe. And everybody just lumped all their divine magics and everything they could on the appropriate three. Um, and I volunteered, I was playing a Humakti, Poljoni Humakti warrior, um, 
and uh, it was, was of course the first one to go, yes, I'll do it, whatever, it's dangerous, but you know, I'll stare death in the face. Um, so we got piled with every kind of magic we could think of, uh, and uh, went down this down these stairs, um, the ghosts started trying to attack us, we just tried to ignore them, carried on going, found the doors to a, a temple, saw the, the remaining bodies of the two guys, one of the, the, the two party members that had been lost, one had drowned himself and the other one had bitten his thumbs off and was bleeding to death in the corner, and... Uh, Ran into this temple, shut the doors behind us, the ghost stopped attacking, and we saw this entire temple walls was just covered in these runes. The scribe gets possessed by a Lancomai scribe who's in there, uh, and ends up having this crazy conversation about um, uh, how this Lancomai scribe had been forced into making these runes for Mariah. Um, the other chap in the room um, was panicking and trying to hold the door shut, and I thought, I'm just going to get started um, smashing these runes. Um, big um, altar, big skull on the top. Um, I've got a torch in my hands, so right, okay, well, let's get rid of the torch, you know, prop it up somewhere. And I thought, well, the eyes of the skull, that's a good idea. Yeah. So I, I shoved the torch in the eye of the skull, and the ref said, oh, John said, um, do you touch the skull? And I said, oh, I'm not really sure. I don't know. <laughs> um, he said, oh, do a dex roll. No. Um, okay, you touch the skull. There's a, there's a 30 pound sever spirit. Oh, <laughs> okay, that's, that's quite nasty. Yes, my character dies, and I'm Humanity, so I ain't coming back. So it was, um, you can DI if you want to, you can try and DI. Alrighty. Well, I want to DI to destroy this temple uh, and everything in it. Um, and uh, John very nicely went, that's a nice humacity thing to do. I mean, you know, as much death and destruction as possible is kind of nice there. I'll give you a bit of a bonus. So yeah, uh, he DI'd and um, collapsed the entire thing, just blew it to pieces. The rest of the party on the top um, just saw the entire thing collapse uh, in a cloud of dust and everything else. Unfortunately, I took a couple of players with me. Um, <laughs> but um, but it, it achieved exactly what we needed to do. Yeah. Uh, and it was a kind of, you know, if you're going to die, yeah, you're right, he didn't die fighting, you know, but he, he died doing what he was meant to be doing. You know, yeah, yeah. As he wrote. That's, that's the first time I've heard of divine intervention being used in an altruistic way. Yeah, at the end of the day, yeah, yeah, at the end of the day, I was killing stuff. Yeah. <laughs> you know. yeah. we've, had a, we've had a few interesting, um, yeah, divine. Yeah. So, so how did you uh, come together then uh, to start playing? When did you first start playing? The YMCA of Southport, it's yeah, got yeah. a lot to blame. Yeah. The, the old role-playing club in the YMCA, um, 50p to get in it was. Yeah, and, I was uh, doing karate at the time, and I used to notice when we finished karate downstairs that uh, there was this bunch of um, bunch of geeks coming in, yeah. <laughs> um, oh. kind of with all dice and stuff. Like that. <coughs> oh, I like stuff like that. So um, it, it naturally progressed. I'd get changed, come down, and you know we'd start rolls. <laughs> so, so, so when was this then? What, what eighty six? Eighty six. Eighty six. Yeah. 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 Horribly so. Yeah. 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 No, I must Hence have been the old person. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was eighty six. Eighty six. Well, it was when I turned up um, yeah, for the first was. time, and turned up with uh, with John Quaife's ideas in my head and, uh, and a RuneQuest campaign in my hands, going, "Ah, oh, just I want to run this for everybody." And but we it, did pay us in rubble. Loved then. It. I loved it. It's yeah, you pay us in rubble. The cradle. The, the catalabellus. Oh yeah, we did. So we had a great time. It was wonderful stuff. Good old RuneQuest. Dungeons and Dragons, Potted History, Part 1. In my hand, I've got a copy of What is Dungeons and Dragons, published in 1982 by Penguin Books. The blurb announces, Enter a gateway to adventure. 
indulge in the fastest-growing fantasy cult of the 80s. Joining a fast-growing cult was a kind of talk that used to get my mum worried back in the day. This is one of those books that publishers rush out to ride on the wave of the most recent fad. It was written by John Butterfield, Philip Parker and David Honingham, who were students at the Premier Public School, Eton, contemporaries of the leading lights of the British government. Presumably, they passed over the chance of burning £50 notes in front of hobos at the Bullingdon Club in exchange for being murder hobos around a tabletop at the D&D Club. Here's more from the blurb. Dungeons and Dragons enables you to play out your wildest fantasies, to battle with monsters, giants and fiends like the Yellow Musk Creeper or the Hound of Ill Omen as you search for fame and fortune in the Caves of Chaos or the Shrine of Shaharajajan. And this is my favourite bit. From students to solicitors, punks to professors, everyone's at it. Students and solicitors, punks to professors. All the occupational bases are covered there. The book makes much of the magic and sorcery in the uh, games and a kind of talk that stoked up the moral panic and reputation for nefarious activity such as teenagers getting trapped in wells and satanic worship that bedeviled the hobby in the early 80s. But more on that in another programme. It also provides a concise version of how D&D came about. The origin story of D&D is well rehearsed. It's a kind of folk tale that seems to change every time it's told, depending on who's telling it. This is a story of the genesis of the hobby itself, and it centres on the coastal town in of Lake Geneva, Wisconsin, where Gary Gygax, an insurance underwriter and part-time cobbler by day, and an avid wargamer by night, formed his game group, the United States Continental Army Command, We would play mainly diplomacy by mail before transforming into the International Federation of Wargaming, a group that would form the first ever Gen Con. Dungeons and Dragons emerged from his medieval combat rules for miniatures, published as Chainmail, in 1971. It included fantasy elements to install fun into the game, such such as a unit that was a fire-breathing dragon, If you think about it, these were exciting times. Times when, for example, Bruce Springsteen was packing in the seaside bars in New Jersey, getting ready to be unleashed on the world in 1975. Meanwhile, Dave Arnson in Minnesota was pepping up war games, featuring ancient battles and introducing phaser guns and monsters. It created a fantasy city of Blackmoor and invited his gaming group to explore the catacombs beneath. They played individuals rather than units 
and he used a rock-paper-scissors variant to resolve conflict. When he looked for the rules for the game, or something to put some mechanics behind it, he turned to chainmail, as they seemed the most appropriate rules, and so eventually contacted its author. The two men came together at GenCon to exchange ideas. They began to formulate what was known as the fantasy game, along with other collaborators. They riffed on different rules and races and uh, features and settings. At this stage, Gygax was very much like Steve Jobs at Apple in the early days, taking these ideas and forming them into workable rules and mechanics. Uh, Steve Jobs, but with shoes. In 1973, he formed Tactical Studies Rules, TSR, after the big publishers such as Avalon Hill expressed no interest in the new project. He struggled to get finance to print and distribute the game, so he depended on more conventional games he'd designed to raise the capital required. To create the title, he brainstormed fantasy elements and put them into two columns. I expect it went something like this. Uh, Kobolds and corridors. No, 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 no. Orcs and orifices. No, 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 no. Dungeons and dragons. It first went on sale in uh, January 74 in a box of three digest-sized books. Steadily, the game began to find an audience. I've never seen the original version, but by all accounts, the rules were difficult to understand, and new players needed to depend on others to pass it on, so they could work out how to play. Steve Jackson and Ian Livingstone were games entrepreneurs from the UK, seeking out distribution deals in America at the time. At the time, they were fulfilling the uh, archetype of an uh, entrepreneur of working out of the back of a van. They were enthusiastic about diplomacy and other games, and they were intrigued by the idea of role-playing, but were unable to make head nor tail of the published rules. They sought out a game society on a college campus to show them how to play. They were hooked and interested in bringing the game to the UK. You'll have to make an order before we can make a deal. And we'll take 17. On the back of that order, they secured the exclusive European distribution rights to D&D for three years, thereby creating the foundation for the phenomena of Games Workshop and everything else that followed. J. Eric Holmes, a doctor of neurology, was captivated by the concept of Dungeons and & Dragons and he offered to make the rules more accessible and readable to reach beyond the wargamers and college crowd. It was a revision of the original rules and included elements of Greyhawk, the supplement that Gygax had produced, with a game world setting and additional character classes and spells, etc. The game was a hit. Sales were exceeding over 4,000 a month in 1978. The license with Games Workshop lasted for three years, and by the end of the 70s, TSR abandoned these 
third-party distribution deals as the game had grown in popularity, to such a degree that they wanted to have a vertically integrated model to maximise the profits. At the same time as Holmes was trying to simplify the system, Gygax made it more complicated. TSR was becoming increasingly litigious, attempting to preserve its burgeoning brand, and Gygax became concerned that people were just not doing it right. So he attempted to create a definitive set of rules. First came the Monster Manual in 77, Player's Handbook in 78, and finally Dungeon Master's Guide in 79. By the time that we got into the hobby and the publication of this book, this Penguin book, the picture was confused as there was three different versions of the rules available. The original rules, the Holmes basic set and the advanced version. Add to that, the main source of our RPGs was Games Workshop who no longer held the licence. So, despite its apparent ubiquity in White Dwarf magazine, it was difficult to get hold of. It's little wonder that we looked elsewhere. For now. Old Scrolls Part 2 D&D Stories But what did we do in a D&D campaign? Oh, everything. Um, I, was a, I was a big fan for sort of getting a, getting a, a, a scenario, getting a, buying a module, or had modules coming at me years anyway. Um, and I trying to link them together in stories and padding them out a bit and just, you know, if anybody had played it before, it just turn it on his head or something, do something weird with it. Yeah. Um, but I was determined that that great story arc of the GDQ series was worth doing. Um, but I also liked the, the A series, which is the Slavers series yeah. uh, from D&D. So um, DDQ? So GDQ is the Giants, Drow, Queen of the Dean Pits, which is a very... Very popular, one of the best stories D&D's ever done, um, where uh, the storyline led through three three scenarios, uh, three modules to do with the giants. Um, so hill giants, frost giants, fire giants. Then you go off in, into the Underdark and you end up facing um, the nefarious drow um, and, and all sorts of other bits and pieces down there for three modules. And then finally trying to take on uh, Loth herself, um, the Queen of the Dingway Pits, the drow's deity, on her own plane, um, which is quite an interesting uh, end to any campaign. Um, <laughs> yeah, there's it's, a, there's it's a big epic. There was a few interesting stories along uh, the way. There was, there was, yeah. there's, there's some goodies. Um, uh, but I, I mean, I attached the Slavers series at the beginning, the A series at the beginning, because I thought it, it, it sort of took you then from about 4th level to 14. Um, it, all told, so it's a nice long epic story. With loads of bits and pieces to, to sort of interconnect, you, you get the players were going all over the place. Yeah. But um, I've got to say, I think my favourite has still got to be Stuart's um, Stuart's fight with a drown mage. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, which <laughs> right. was um, so we had um, we had a, a character uh, played by a, a good friend of ours, Stuart, who um, was Et- he liked play mages. Etta. He, he, uh, yeah, Etta the, the mage uh, who loved play mages, Stuart. So. Um, when it ended up the whole party piling into a, a particular room in the demon web pits, um, which had uh, several drow, two drow on top of three pyramids dotted around the room and tons of zombies in the middle just to try and slow you down. And the party went wading in there um, and, and 
slowly but surely uh, hacking through uh, their enemies. He had ended up at one point with um, Stuart's character and uh, a drow mage facing off against each other, and Stuart was determined to kill this guy. Um, he'd obviously decided that was it, I'm going to make sure this guy dies. Um, and he had a, he had a, 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 a casting of a prismatic sphere ready. So he, he cast this around him and this mage so this mage couldn't get out. Uh, and then they started this magical duel, swinging spells back and forth to each other. And the drow mage was running out, uh, and Etta could still always turn to, to beating him up a bit. But the spells went backwards and forwards, and finally, Etta uh, decided that he was going to cast stone skin on himself, thankfully, beforehand. So the old stone skin rules were you, if, you took a, if you took a hit, it was just completely negated for so many hits. Yes, yeah. The drow mage had run out of his lightning bolts, fireballs, or anything else that was mainly offensive. And I think he had a casting of ESP left and a, and a casting of polymorph other. So it was polymorph other for the next round. And finally it worked. Mm. And uh, polymorphed Etta into something that a spider could eat. Um, so uh, uh, he went for a, a caterpillar. <laughs> um, so Etta the mage is a caterpillar. Um, suddenly realises he's a caterpillar. Starts going as fast as a caterpillar can towards the prismatic sphere to get out. And as he can work <laughs> it, he casts it. So he's going as fast as he can across the floor. The drow mage goes, I got you now, and stamps on him. That's one stone skin down. The drow looked again, eh? Die, damn you! <laughs> and chased him out of the prismatic... I eventually left the drow in this prismatic sphere going, oh, can't get out, as this caterpillar makes its way. Phew! Um, sweating gets out, of the, uh, gets out of the prismatic sphere, but it's brilliant, absolutely excellent. I mean, it's just one of those classic, you know, yeah, everybody's um, waiting to see what's going to happen. But bear in mind, we're all... Um, Kind of mountain dwarf. Well, we're not yeah. all mountain dwarfs. Most of them. We're mostly mountain dwarfs in full plate, tower shields, um, bastard swords. Yeah, um, for some reason. Maces, whatever, yeah. all that kind of stuff. And there was Lord Snare. Oh, there was the, the giant. They, they got very cocky. If you, if you remember the old second edition rules, dwarfs, dwarfs and giants. Dwarves have quite a lot going for them against giants. They're hard to hit for giants for some reason. Natural like enemies. Natural enemies kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and uh, as a fool, I had um, I had let the party manage to get their hands, and it was I think it was Etta that got it, wasn't it? The uh, the appropriate equipment to be able to wield um, the old uh, hammer of thunderbolts. So right. giants were scared stiff of this lot because they had one of these instant kill hammers. You know, uh, kills giants on one hit kind of thing. Um, and um, so we had the gauntlets of gauntlets of overpowered girl of giants. Once you can pick it up, and this hammer that you can Which throw re- and it kills giants, it returns, yeah, and it's yeah. horrendous. So they turn up outside the fire giant king's halt, and it's a volcano with huge doors, massive wall. And I'm expecting you know what most players are going to do is you know just kind of you know break in there and go do things. No, no, no. This lot decide we're cocky now. Uh, we're getting quite cocky now. We've just smashed a hill giant. We've just smashed a frost giant. So we'll just knock on the door and go right. You've got three days to surrender. <laughs> <laughs> uh, or we're coming in well that's three days of preparation um, in my eyes <laughs> so I went through the module uh, I looked at everything that was possible available right to, to, to Lord's yeah. Yeah. and had it all waiting for them when they came in it was an epic fight um, but my favourite bit has got to have been um, Lord Snur behind a, a shield wall of, of fire giants protecting himself at the back and they can't get a good sight on him. They're trying to get there to get this hammer to try and, and kill him. this was Etta again, wasn't it? This is Etta again. Pushes his way through the crowd as fast as he can. And finally, Lord Snow very cockily steps out from behind the shield wall. So Etta, ha-ha, gotcha now. Launches the hammer of thunderbolts. And gets quite a shock when Lord Snow catches it. 
and gets back behind the shield, which I can't do. What, what, what the hell? How did you do that? And of course, I found this ring of wishes in the, in the, uh. in the, uh, in the scenario. I'm going, well, if anybody's going to use it, it's going to be Lord Steps in his treasure. So he's got this, yeah, hell, I'll just wish to catch it. Yeah. And beyond heart, thank you very much. He walked up with it. There was a complete panic as it was completely weaponless at that point. Yeah. Um, sword! Throw yes. me sword! Something! <laughs> Um, but yes, they still trash the place. Yeah, as they should. Know. I was um, a cleric, a dwarven cleric. Yeah. We? Yeah. Not played Sky. Yeah, Sky. He was a cleric, wasn't he? Oh, he was a, no, was he was a fighter. fighter. He was oh, a yeah. fighter. Oh, no, well, that's later on. He was a fighter with it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, uh, we were dwarven fighters. Uh, now, a scared fighter. I had some kind of uh, fight. We used to go after dragons early on, didn't we? You were mad at yeah. one point, yeah. And so I, my character had this, uh, obviously, full dwarven field plate, uh, full tower shield, massive sword. Um, and inside my helmet, to protect my beard, I had this big, long, kind of fireproof material with a slit for the eyes. Then I had this almost sightless helmet, you know, over the top. And we just charged it forward. Had, it had three settings, didn't it? The visor had three settings, it which did. was kind of like right. open. Closed for combat and then can't see anything because I don't want to. And then fully closed. (laughs) (laughs) I just don't want to see anything at this point. Uh, So when we had like cone effect, uh, dragon kind of flames kind of thing, you know, it's like, right, I'm going on, I'm going on one. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. I don't want to know. But it was good. Uh, D&D was, yeah. Yeah, I I survived uh, three parties dying on me, my (laughs) character. Yeah, the first party was during the, it was the... The Horn, the Big Will, the Lost Cave. Lost Cousins show that. To, to shamp, whatever you want to call it. Which is one of the first yeah. modules, wasn't it? Yeah, get to the end. Big vampire asleep in the middle. And there's, and a the whole party. Pic- there's a lovely picture there. Beautiful the picture. There should be the picture. Female vampire and a, on a, you know, looking down into a kind of oubliette kind of thing with a long kind of chain and a lantern. Yeah, which is what they were after. Yeah. And, and the, uh, the thief kind of crept in. Yeah, sorry. Down, down the lantern. The, the thief um, uh, managed to, uh, I think he had spider, somebody cast spider climb for him, yeah. some slippers of spider climb, went across yeah. the roof, tried to unhook the lantern, uh, and that asked him to make a, you know, a sneaky roll thing, and he failed. Quite surprising, actually, because the guy who's playing the thief knows what he's doing. Um, but, yeah, failed the old um, jingling of the lantern, and this, this woman's eyes open, and uh, this rather nasty armed vampire sort of stands up. Everybody who's on the balcony watching this panics. Ah! And on mass bar one, they start to run. Uh, one guy stays on the balcony. The thief, um, standing there, um, looking somewhat panicked, ends up fighting the vampire on his own. Then the vampire flies over to the guy on the balcony and fights him on his own. And then as the vampire continues down the corridor, finds that one member at a time of the party have spaced themselves out nice and neatly for sort of single one-on-one combat with a nasty vampire all the way down the corridor. Um, until uh, the only person who kept running was, was Rick Dwarf. Everybody else spaced themselves out nicely so the vampire could just pick them off one at a time. It was, it was you know, it, it part, was, party wipeout of not my making. It was, uh, <laughs> yeah, it was a lesson learned. <laughs> yes, yeah. I'd like to think so. And, and the next party, um, wasn't it, what was, was it a mind flayer riding a nightmare kind of thing? That was kind of the end of it all when yeah. you goofed. Um, we had one player playing an elf archer and it was the party leader. They had to sneak through, the, the idea was to sneak through a bandit camp and stop the summoning of this nasty demon. There's a big tower in the middle for, this, for these nasty wizards, or so they thought. I should turn out to be mind blowers, but hey. As they're sneaking through the bandit camp and the elves hiding behind a tent, suddenly bright golden light appears and this stunningly um, amazing, powerful looking uh, elf uh, with golden hair 
uh, covered in beautiful elven armour and all the rest of it, appears next to him, uh, right in the middle of this bandit camp, and in a kind of echoey voice, hands him around and says, this arrow, and says, you'll need this, and kind of disappears. And the elf kind of looks at the arrow and goes, that's, that's nice, I'll put it in the quiver, put it in this quiver. And they get into the, the bottom of this, um, this tower to find some horrible summoning going on, but they were slightly late. And just as this demon starts to coalesce in the middle of the of the of the circle, and I'm kind of going, yes, you've got it. You've got perfect range on it. It's you know, it's there. It's it's oh, it's you know, sixty foot away. It's, it's nice hot, short it's range. Hot, you can, range. You yeah. can easily hit it from here. <laughs> but for some reason, the party decided to attack it melee, um, including the elf. Um, and yeah, uh, I think one of the other players went, "What about that arrow?" And I think he just kind of went, "Oh, that must be for something else." And, and again, I was I was left on my own. Um, <laughs> I had a, a sword which made me invisible, so I went invisible. Potted history, part two. In 1988, we were put into a deep freeze, placed in the RPG cryonic pods by life in general, and disillusionment with the way things were going. What with Warhammer and all those minis and everything. We flicked the switch and froze ourselves almost completely out of the hobby. At the time, the second edition was being published after a long period of deliberation by TSR. It was originally conceived by Gary Gygax at the height of his pomp, when D&D the brand was reaching TV screens and bath towels. He was... Uh, planning on reorganising the advanced rules in conjunction with Frank Mentzer, who had developed the basic edition of the rules that had helped convert new players to the game in the mid-80s. However, he had departed the company by 1988, leaving the project to Zeb Cook, who attempted to streamline the unwieldy first edition into a reference book for players by organising the materials into topics rather than spreading it out over the different volumes. It was the edition that we had turned to in the early noughties when we partially defrosted to play D&D for a brief but intense period. The rules were broadly the same apart from changes to character classes. There was more depth for magic users for example and it introduced non-weapon proficiencies. The tone was very different too, eschewing the prescriptive tendency of Gygax with a more laid-back, your-game-may-vary approach. In addition, the rules made much more sense. Of course, the edition we should have reached for in the early noughties was the third edition, which was released in the year 2000. It was at the centre of a D20 revolution, where everything seemed to be resolved with a, a D20 with modifiers. The amendments to the combat allowed for more tactical decisions during play, to try and build on the growth of miniature gaming. It was the first version published by Wizards of the Coast, who had acquired the cash-strap TSR in the mid-90s. Their core business was card games, deck-building games like Pokemon and uh, Magic the Gathering. The fourth edition, released in 2007, has its supporters, but it's generally dismissed by players because it seemed to take its mechanical cues from the 
online games like World of Warcraft, where characters could pick powers and reduce the options for character building. Wizards took their time developing the next iteration, extensively playtesting the rules under the working title of D&D Next. When the starter set arrived in 2014, it was praised for its intuitive simplicity. It was followed by handsome, imaginative reworkings of the player handbook, Dungeon Master's Guide, and, most impressive of all, the Monster Manual. It's a version that seems to reach out beyond the hobbyist gamers and have a more generic appeal. Maybe, once again, we'll see Dungeons & Dragons take the world by storm and it'll be played by students, to solicitors, punks, to professors. Everyone's at it. Everyone. Oh, Scrotes! Part three. You described uh, playing uh, RuneQuest and D and D. So I pose you this question because we we played uh, uh, RuneQuest yeah. and uh, we found when we moved to D and D that it seems to encourage this power play. So what he talks about here is about stuff and yeah. getting powers and yeah. So do you think? So this is the question we posed. Do you think that D and D creates power play, or do you think power play attracts D? Is attracted to D and D. D&D is different than RuneQuest in that, to my mind, D&D is high fantasy. So right. RuneQuest is quite low fantasy. Dirty, it's nasty, you've got hit RuneQuest is, is Bronze Age. And it, you, you, know? get, you get limbs ripped off and all that. It's quite dirty, nasty stuff. It's quite realistic. D&D is not. D&D is high fantasy. Yeah. You've got hit points. Nobody really can... You, you can describe the damage how you like. Um, so it's epic stuff when so you it's, get to it's higher It's very level. high epic powered stuff. You, 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 couldn't, you couldn't create a D&D character in RuneQuest, of, you know, a high level D&D character in RuneQuest. It'd be very hard yeah. um, to kind of do similar. Um, but, and in RuneQuest there's always that threat of death, no matter what. It could be, you know, a duck in the background with a sling crits and there you go. Yeah. Uh, you know, oh, oops. Um, whereas in D&D there was, there was always that, um, certainly in second ed and that kind of thing, and even third ed to a degree, that that's a point where the fighter can go. Well, do you know what, guys? You carry on. I'll take the hundred cobbles on. Don't yeah. that. I'll I'll kill them and, and catch you up. There was that kind of <laughs> there was that kind of attitude. Which so it is quite yeah. it is, so the characters or else some of my barbarian horse. Yeah, or whatever. Yeah. 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 Um, so it was quite it's quite over the top in in a lot of respects. Um, but it does depend on how you play it and how yeah. you ref it. The players can make it quite. Um, so I, th- I think in answer to your question, yes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> kind of. Yeah. Uh, I imagine it does attract power players in the fact that if you want to play big powerful characters, D&D would be the thing to play yeah. because you can really max out on it. Um, not that you can't be really powerful in request. Um, but but there's always that threat of death in request that there's, yeah. you know, anything could happen where in a fight you're always, you're always at risk. Whereas in D&D sometimes you're just not... Well, not really. So, uh, in the podcast, we've been uh, choosing uh, one of the best from the, from the following. So, I'm going to ask uh, you f- first of all. So, Rick, mm-hmm. what's your favourite spell? So, uh, well, I I like turning spells on the head. Yeah. Uh, so, I like casting fire trap on an oil flask, throwing it and it explodes, stuff like that. And um, you know, grease is fantastic. What a great spell. <laughs> um, fleeing enemies, etc. Your favourite at the moment is? Touch attack. 
stuff. Yeah, I like. I like. Um, what what's the touch attack one? In, inflict. Inflict wounds. Inflict yeah, wounds. Yeah. Inflict Swap. wounds in fifth dead. I can cast as say what an eighth level spell. You can use it? a high level. Spell I can slot use a high level spell slot, so I can cast it as an eighth level spell, and I'll do like. I can do like 10, 10d10 10 damage or awesome. something like that. Either 10d or 10dn damage. It's a doozy. On a, on a touch, you yeah. know, so it's an easier to hit someone on a touch attack. And it's my classic uh, clerical get out of jail card kind of thing. If yeah. I'm near a monster, you know, I'm good with it. I'm good with my uh, kind of mace, uh, kind of um, my war pick. I'm good with my war pick. You know, I can even shield bash him. But what the hell? Touch attack. You know, I can do like 60, 70 damage. Mm-hmm. It's tremendous. Mm-hmm. Which is tremendous in bit then, yeah. And Tim, Tim your favourite spell? <sighs> Having played a mage, uh, I, I liked, I, I, a bit like Rick, I didn't go for the big boom bash mage, um, weirdly. Um, and played a mage, I think my favourite was monster summoning. Uh, Just because <laughs> you could cause untold amounts of grief for the enemy. Yeah. Um, particularly if you buff your monsters after that. Yeah. You know, if you can, you know, uh, get somebody to bless them, haste them, yeah. you know. <laughs> a, but even if it's a bunch of goblins, a bunch of hasted, blessed goblins is quite, you know, it's a pain in the butt for most people, you know. Yeah. Um, anything you can do to buff them up can always be fun. And, and of course, you never know what you end up with sometimes. You know, it's a yeah. monster, so it can be quite a good laugh. Yeah. Um, at, the, at the right moment, put in the right place. <laughs> and what about character class? What's your... Uh, cleric. Cleric. Definitely. <laughs> Mm. Definitely cleric. And why why cleric? Um, fighters are a bit boring, a bit obvious. Um, I've done. I like mage. I like wizard. Uh, you know, I love all the spells, but I like to have um, the backup hit points, the backup armor, the backup weapons. Mm. If if all spells fail, I like to be able to be uh, kind of an all round kind of thing. But I enjoy I enjoy the freedom of using spells that what that gives me in the edge. Yeah. You know. Yeah, and I can help heal the party yeah. as well. And I like the religious uh, kind of aspect to it. You know, it, for a role-playing point of view, it, you know, it definitely helps as some religious maniac urging everyone forward. <laughs> <laughs> Being able to heal them and bless them at the same time kind of thing. You know, and obviously you can turn uh, ghosts, zombies, ghouls and all that, you know, you yeah. can... Influence them in that kind of thing, call it, calling upon your God's divine powers. Yeah, good. And decent, <sighs> not bad, sorry, not bad hit points as well, you know. Yeah. So, yeah, all around. I'm in a quandary now. Because um, <laughs> since I got fifth head, I've kind of gone through them all and gone, I really like them all now. Um, even bards, and I've got to say that in that that, that, <laughs> that way, even bards, I've, I've taken a bit of a kind of, yeah, they have their place now. Um, the only one in fifth head I'm not impressed with is Warlock. I tried playing one, not the best. No. And why is that? I tried playing one and I found that um, in a party um, of everything but Warlocks, <laughs> um, I was at a loss. I, I went for the um, I went for the sort of fade pact thing. Um, so uh, and played an elf. I wanted to play it really kind of. I wanted to play it really kind of uh, Terry Pratchett, Lord and Ladies type elf. Uh, he's a you know, real uh, quite quite quirky but not quite nice um, kind of elf but it doesn't it, I, I, I was I was really struggling I was really yeah. struggling to be on a par with anyone 
yes, I can I can fire my Eldritch Blast uh, every round, but so can, a, uh, so can a wizard and do better things. By the time we were of about level five, the wizard had numerous spells he could chuck in there as well. I had two, which I had to save for to save my life most of the time. So you were kind of a bit limited. I didn't find it competed. Well, I say competed. I didn't find it not competed, but matched the other character classes. But all the others I really enjoyed. But I've got to, I suppose, wizard or rogue is my thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. one or the other or both. Kind of like that kind of thing. A little bit of. Gives you a little bit of freedom for alternative methods of doing things. Yeah. And what, what about the opposition? So one of my favourite bits about D and D is the monsters. You know. uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, so <laughs> if you had to uh, pick one, Rick, what's the what's what, the monster? The favourite opposition. Your favourite yeah, opposition. opposition. Yeah. Uh, well, apart from the obvious villages and uh, pitchforks and things like that. <laughs> uh, and, yeah. The favourites. Because what I like about uh, D&D is that it's created um, like uh, monsters that just couldn't exist. They only exist because yeah. of, uh, uh, of corridors and uh, rooms. Or exactly, like, yeah. and gelatinous cubes and that. Kind yeah. of yeah. They're all kind of... Um, yeah, they've all got edges. Even co- well, kobolds can be particularly nasty, which, you know, people don't think... That, you know, hobgoblins is the, the warrior kind of race. <laughs> you know, a, a pretty horrendous... My favourite, I mean, my least favourite fighting a drow, okay. <laughs> the Dark Elves, with all yeah. the powers and natural magic resistance. Yeah. Oh, they're just horrendous. Um, my favourite kind of knock around, I suppose, uh, yeah, goblin-y kind of. You like beating things up, Yeah. That's what you want. Yeah, it's masses want of goblins. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, from a ref's point of view. Oh, oh. <laughs> the choice is it's, it's drooling here uh, without giving too much away because I think Rick will probably just uh, drown just bury uh. his head in his hands and actually funny enough not to drown though I do like reffing them because I can just let my evil side out um, I love the idea that they've, they've started to expand upon with anything that is an aberration which includes your mind flayers and your intellect devourers and all oh. that kind of stuff yeah. Um, they've got it. They've started to sort of attach things together really nicely to make a very kind of weird group of monsters that that are just freaky. They're just they're just you can go to go to town on them. They just they can freak players out big time. And that's what I like. I like to watch players go, "What the hell is that?" Uh, and uh, and panic a bit, and then realise that it's probably not that bad. But I have to give an honourable mention to the flump. It's the most ridiculous creature in the world. Um, who I don't know who designed the flump, but but whatever, why ever they created it, um, a flying plate um, that, that's rendered completely pointless by turning it upside down um, is just yeah. I don't know why. I don't know why, but hats off to the flump, whatever it is, and why. So you mentioned a couple of times that you're now playing the fifth edition. Yeah. So just give us a general overview of. Yeah, it kind of equals out. um, Yeah, and and as you said before, with the mage, you know, and clerics and that, you know, clerics can heal kind of every round. Mages can. um, I've I've got a basic attack every round. Basic attack every round. So they they don't they're no longer the torchbearer that we once were. That's it. Um, yeah. They, they don't use your spell because then you're pointless. Um, so even from first level, yeah. you've always got like a fighter. You you've always got something you can chuck into the fight. Yeah, you're not using a first level spell or whatever. No. for light. Your cantrips. You know. Yeah, your cantrips are, are, are usable again and again. So yeah. you, you you've always got something knocking about. 
I like the way... And to be honest with you, in fifth ed, I think at starting levels, there's not much between you and a fighter when it comes to scrap. You can yes, right. You, can, you, know, you might not be wearing even the, hits the, the light armor of the first character. Yeah, yeah. But your hits aren't far off. Your chance to hit is probably similar. Yeah. The only advantage the fighter might have is if he's got a very high strength. But hey, you know, you might have a high dex to try and help you give yourself a bit of armor class. Use a finesse weapon. You know, like a dagger, and um, you're still. You know, I think the spells are e evened out as well. Like um, things like eagles. What is it? Uh, cat's grace. Bull strength. All now one spell. It's all one spell, and you just pick. What you want to pick. What you want. I think because um, we 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 didn't um, we didn't play anything between um, second edition to right. fifth edition, uh, so uh, we haven't seen how the evolution. I got very excited when third edition came out because it was D and D, but they'd added skills. They they thrown in some interesting ideas. Feats. I was a bit kind of yeah, like feats and things. I was a bit kind of uh, we we were still sticking to the to the um, to the fighter magic to cleric thief bit. Okay, um, thankfully Monty Cook came along and went um, and this is how you could do it as well. Um, and threw out in his own rule books and and that added untold amounts of variation. But it, it, but things started getting a little bit out of hand. You you you. Your difficulty numbers started to get very, very high, and you start to get players concentrating solely on particular skills so that they were high enough to be able to defeat very, very difficult target numbers all the time. And it, it sort of power crept a bit somehow. I don't know how really, but it kind of got a bit out of hand, and, and the numbers were becoming a bit kind of 30s and 40s for difficulties, and things like that. It was, was just kind yeah, of that's a bit ridiculous. See what? Fourth Ed, I didn't touch too much of a board game to me. Um, didn't need it. Was thoroughly enjoying third. Ed, thank you very much, or th even three point five. No, we don't talk about fourth edition. Not really. No. <laughs> and uh, and um, but then fifth ed came along, and I couldn't help but have a little look, um, and was pleasantly surprised. Mm. It went back to what D and D was about. That is still high fantasy. It, it cut down the, the ridiculous numbers, even things out a little bit. Kept in. Your armor classes and your hit points don't go crazy. They're not ridiculous, hmm. but they're enough that even at lower levels, um, bearing in mind you start with maximum hit points at first level anyway. Um, hmm. So even at lower levels, you've got enough hit points to kind of keep you going. You can recover them quite easily, and and you've but, got but there's still that risk. There's and, still enough risk. He Healing-wise, you've got the short rest and the long rest. Yeah, all that kind of stuff. So you can recover them really nicely using your own hit dice and some of your abilities. Um, which I think has come from 4th Ed, from what I've been told, but um, some of that. Yeah. But 5th Ed seems to have just got it, hit, it, hit the nail on the head. It needs, I would say, if there's anything I would, I would say it needs, it just needs a few more variations on the classes, because the classes, you kind of specialise at about 3rd level, you specialise into various paths. Um, so, for example, um, as a thief, you might, as a rogue, sorry, you might go down the thief route, or the assassin route, or the, the arcane trickster route. A few more of those would be nice. And I know they brought a few out, they brought out a swashbuckler route and that kind of thing. But for all the classes that can do this kind of thing, yeah. it would be nice to have a bit more variation in there. Um, just well, because players like that kind of thing. But well, each character <coughs> has a, a pro progression, don't they? And yeah. a, and a, as you're saying, the path they can go on, like, you know... It does influence what they, what they gain as they go along. Yeah. So as a thief, you'll become more and more capable of, of 
you know, sneaking and, and getting around things. As an assassin, obviously, you'll become a little bit more nasty at taking things out. As an arcane trickster, you start picking up, picking up spells and particularly yeah. specialising in mage hand. Yeah. So you start getting, being able to pick pockets from a distance and all that kind of stuff, which yeah. is always fun. Yeah. And, um, and the feats. The feats are better. The, but the feats that you can pick for any one kind of thing. So you could be like a barbarian, mm. but you could pick, um, was it... Magical specialist or something. Yeah, yeah you, can, you can pick one where you get a couple of cantrips to you, use. You get just a, <laughs> a day, you know. You get one first level spell yeah. and two cantrips from any spell list. Mm. There you go. So you know, if, you, if you want a character with a little bit of magic and, and yeah. the feats are the feats are a little bit more interesting, a little bit more padded out. Um it does become a choice now. Because now when you get you get certain levels, you get instead of one stat point, they, they allow you to have two stat points you can raise. Um they put a maximum limit on your stats so that it's not forever and a day you can raise your stats um, so it's only a stat of 20 is your maximum for anybody no matter what race you are but it means that when you come in to choose which way your stat points go do you do the stat point bit or do you take a feat and it, it is actually sometimes quite a difficult choice it's you know that feat's really nice um, but I could do with a bit of you know <laughs> and, and you, you know, do I wait which one which one comes first and with, with just sorry just going back to when you were talking about RuneQuest and D&D I love the percentile yeah, yeah. system with RuneQuest. Uh, I love the complexity that arises from that with the criticals, the specials, and the fumbles. And with but with D and I like the simplicity of the D twenty. Yeah. I like the D twenty system. Yeah. Yes, it's it's pretty straightforward stuff. And again, they they powered it down a bit as well. Yeah. So now um, gone are the days where people have got a, a massive uh, you know plus one swords chucked in there in the back of the of the van because they can't be bothered with them yeah, because yeah. they've got a plus five whatever everything's powered down a plus one sword means more it actually has feels like it has more of an effect do you get master crafters in there um, no no not really no. Um, but um, yeah I suppose you could come up with something but yeah. at the end of the day plus one swords worth it plus one anything's worth it and most things only go up to about plus three yeah, yeah. so plus three's yeah, plus these kind of quite legendary stuff. Yeah, put a cap on that. So it's nice. It, it, it just powers things down a little bit, makes it a little bit more... Um, you feel like you're in a bit more risk as well, I think, even when you're fighting oh, all, right. the, all, the, all the creatures, a lot of the creatures like goblins and kobolds and things, they've got their own little special abilities now. Like when, they're, they're, they're kind of famous for. So kobolds are really good ambushes, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. and there's a reason for that. You yeah, know. Yeah. Um, orcs, well, like, orcs are quite scary if they charge you. There's a good reason for that, yeah. you know. And talking about um, spells, we were in... Um, a, a complex, weren't we? A stone kind of complex, where that guy backstabbed uh, Nigel's. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. no, Nick's character, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I can't remember. Who and there was it. two doorways in, and I had um, the melt to stone, and it just covered the doorway in stone, kind of thing. So that's blocked off, and we could deal with the uh, bad guy. Then mm. I could uh, teleport circle out of there, kind of thing. You know. But there's yeah. loads, loads of nice little changes to the rules, changes to the spells that just make it a bit more playable, a little bit more fun, uh, just a bit more. Um, usable. Everybody feels that can that they can have an effect. Particularly because I used to hate it when your you, your thieves would be hanging in the background going, "I've got no hit points." Yeah. And I and I'm could only wear light armor. And now these are quite decent combats, particularly yeah. if they can get you know a blind side on you. So you've you're a club now. I understand that people come from <laughs> across the country. <laughs> to, <laughs> yeah. This this is one aspect of our role play. Yeah, yeah. yeah. This 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 group here. The basically because scrotes. we're all mates that, that that still like role playing despite our age. There's um, a couple of different groups, splinter groups as it were. <laughs> <laughs> which is basically uh, Tim's nephew and his mates, which we role play with. They're all like early twenties. You know, my son Callum, he's. Um, 
you know, 17, 18 almost. He's been role-playing a couple of yeah. years. Yeah, yeah. Uh, other old friends that are still around. But, but the old scrotes is, is the old guys that, that kind of, we've been role-playing for a good long year, long time, yeah. and just found, we wanted to get back together again and class up role-playing again. D&D. What, what and do a bit of D&D. Yeah. And uh, loving it. Just loving it. It's really nice. So the Armchair Adventurers are joining you uh, for a game. What yeah. can we expect? <laughs> oh, um, <laughs> There's going to be laughs, um, no well, doubt. You're going to be underground, okay, <laughs> permanently. We don't uh, go upstairs. <laughs> they they decided to play, uh, I gave them an option, the old scouts, uh, I said, look, you know, what do you want to play, how do you want to play it? Um, they chose that they all wanted to play dwarves. Right. <sighs> so, again. So, um, yes, so I've set the entire thing uh, in the Underdark. Um, they've never seen the surface since we started. Um, there's been lots of uh, there's been a bit of political machination because I've, I've you know these are the old guys that have, that have done the first level second level third level stuff time and time again so I've kicked them off at level ten because I wanted to see what level ten fifth edition was like um, it's turned out to be quite interesting um, but I kicked them off at level ten we've had um, plots and counterplots and um, and surprises uh, yeah, and, and a, a um, few epic battles a few epic fights so far and kind of um, a few surprises magically. Uh, made uh, almost cyberpunk siege mach machinery as a as described it, without, without giving things yeah, away too much away but yeah there's um yeah i've kind of thrown them a, a yeah. few curveballs but it but yeah good it, well, the thing is the thing is what i find with the old guys is the old guys have got past the um it's not all about i'm trying to kill a lot of roles. all the time and it's not all about trying to get the treasure all the time there's a lot of role play stuff in yeah. there and we have a bit of fun with it and usually um, I can heartily recommend that the, the idea of um, people coming along and, and sort of going, right, well, I'll, I'll bring this bit, you bring this bit. And we usually have a, a quite, a decent, uh, quite a decent food on the table when we play this. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the characters do as well. And, and, and yeah. I, think, I think the first time we did, the first time we did it, um, everybody decided to bring seven of everything. We're playing dwarves. Uh, <laughs> so um, we had seven cheeses, seven breads, and, and Nige, God bless his soul, uh, got together seven birds, made a seven bird pie himself, crust and all, <laughs> um, with a big hammer on the top, uh, and turned up with that. It was stunning. It yeah. was amazing. Yeah, and it, would, it but you know, just make make it make fun of it. Yeah, have fun with it, and and just enjoy it. That's what it's for, after all. Just you know, enjoy yourself. So, will myself and uh, Blythe be presented as a curveball? Or... Yes. yes, yeah, so I, I have used a oh, bit yeah, of a curveball. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have used a lot of a curveball. You'll be in at the deep end. <laughs> yeah. You'll be in at the deep end. <laughs> you are, you are my, part of my curveball for the, for the session. Um, it's going to be interesting. We'll, but you'll like it. You'll, yeah, you'll, you'll have fun. Yeah, looking forward to it. Well, Rick, Tim, thank you very much. Absolute pleasure. Yeah. Brilliant. Thank you. Yeah. Post bag! Hello, Blythe. Hello, Dirk. Okay, I don't normally have you here for this bit. No. I normally rummage my sack in the comfort of my own home. Hmm. But I've brought it into the room of role-playing rambling, my bag of holding, <laughs> and it's bursting at the seams because we've attracted a lot of correspondence for the D&D stuff that we've done. Um, so I've picked some bits here. Now, what I thought I'd do in it, like, do you remember points of view? I do remember points of view, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so it's a, the BBC on a Sunday afternoon. Isn't it? You know, yes. You knew you had to school the next day. Yes. And it'd be Barry Tuck. That's in, right. When people it. gave their opinion of the BBC and the BBC read out the opinion and then ignored it. Yeah, that's right. That's the model we're using, is it? Yeah, that's the model. Okay, that suits me. 
Well, normally what they did, they kind of, um, they, they were either very sycophantic, weren't they? Yes. Or very indignant. Yes. And There's no in-between, was there? Yeah. Mm. And it, I mean, they were indignant about stuff. I mean, it was like early days of uh, internet trolling, weren't it? But the way yeah. that the the way the BBC would do it is they would ha- they would like patronise them by having a regional accent reading out the letter, wouldn't they? Yes, they yeah. would. So you know, somebody would be complaining about somebody having a digital watch on Poldark or something like that, <laughs> <laughs> and they'd read it out in yeah. a. Northeast accent, won't they? Yeah. Well, I didn't have, uh, you know, that kind, of, and and it would kind of lower it down, wouldn't it? Lower yeah, it down. yeah, yeah. So what yeah. I thought. And then they would have someone on saying how the digital watch in Paul Dart was possibly the best digital watch you'd ever seen on TV, and could we have some more, please? Yes, exactly. Yeah. So they yeah. always counterbalanced it. Didn't yeah, they, they did. <laughs> so we had lots of correspondence to do with the D and D stuff we've got, and it's on uh, the grognardfiles.com and people should read the comments. Some really good ones in there. And uh, people have kind of shared their stories of playing, and some people who started playing again have done it. I'm going to leave those there for people to go and find. What I've picked out here, because I've got you in the room, mm. is some of those where they've taken issue with something we said or done. I can't see why. <laughs> I can't imagine why people would take issue with anything we say. And what I thought I would do is I have a limited repertoire of NPC accents. You do? Well, at one. <laughs> oh come on! I mean, They're I all from New York. All, all your NPCs are from Brooklyn, New York. All of them. No, not all of them. I do have. It a... sounds like they all are. <laughs> but I thought I'd read them in the style, that, and I've done like a table here, and we're all on here. Okay. And when we're ready to um, uh, do it, we'll, we'll do it. We'll do it in that style. Okay. And uh, I've got a few in there. I've got my David Bowie one. I mean, I don't. I hope I don't get that one. Because my David Bowie. David one. Bowie never. I don't think they read anything out on points of view in a David Bowie accent, did they? I know. Well, they, we are. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Trouble is, with David Bowie one though, it turns into Jimmy Savile. We don't want that. No, I don't want that. Don't want. Maybe avoid David Bowie. Yeah. Right. So let me uh, let me get the first one up, and this is from uh, Alan Mackenzie Graham, and oh, surprise, surprise! It's my Brooklyn Varga. Is it Brooklyn Varga? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I've really enjoyed the podcast. I did notice an inconsistency in Blythe's evaluation of Dungeon Master's Guide and Traveller. He was very complimentary of the planet generation tables in Traveller. Um, I thought you said it was a Brooklyn accent. <laughs> That's my best Brooklyn oh, accent. Oh, I see. Sorry, it's only Welsh. Um, well, that's a fair observation, I suppose, isn't it? Um because I was sort of rather... I did pour cold water on the idea of random dungeons, but I think there are some differences. I think there are some differences. Um, I think that if you look at the Traveller rules, the, the planetary generation system isn't entirely random in that certain factors affect some of the roles. So it's not like rolling 2d6 six times and that's your planet. Uh, things like the law level are affected by the level of population and things like that. So there's a little bit of science put in there. But I think the other the other thing is that the if you look at the original Traveller rules, so you, you've not got the Spinwood Marches and you've not got the Soleimani Rim and all those kind of star charts. You've not got that. You do need a random planet generator because in any particular game say a four hour game you know an evening game in traveler 
players can hop from one planet to another. So if you're having to create planets on the hoof, that can be a bit tricky because you default into, oh, oh this is an ice planet, oh, oh, this is a desert planet, oh, this is a, oh, a jungle planet. Uh, mm. Whereas I think the random planetary generation thing gives you, you know, more scope in a way. Random dungeon, that's different because in an evening game, you're only going to be in one dungeon. So come on. Put the time in, Games Master. Invent yeah, a dungeon. I, I think I think where some people have taken issue with is um, as well, and I, I share some of this. I share some of this because I do think the random dungeon generator is a bit balmy. <laughs> However, it does do that thing. Like I said, when I was arguing about it, that it reduces some of the heavy lifting. So it's not necessarily that you turn up to the table and start rolling on the table and creating the dungeon. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's you know, I need to prepare something, I'm going to roll on some tables and create something quickly. Mm. So I can see where the analogy with the planet generator comes in. I can see that, I can see that but I still think that if you're, if you're having a game of D&D and you're the games master, then the idea of drawing some rooms and corridors and putting some monsters in is just not that difficult. At the end of the day, it's not difficult. I think in Traveller... Um, Players have a bit more freedom in Traveller, so they are, they can decide to leave a planet in their spaceship and go to another planet. And if yeah. you haven't got a planetary system prepared, you know, you might need that kind of random... You might need to do that. Yeah. I think where it differs as well is that the um, there's a bit more variance, isn't there? So it gives you a little bit more detail about the planet, um, like you said, whereas the random dungeon generator doesn't give yes. you the kind of sensory yes. it, it, the air's not thin yeah. uh, you know um, there's, there's moss on the walls it's not it's not that kind of thing is it no, it's just the, it just generates oh it's a corridor oh it's a room yeah. oh it's this it's that well I just don't think that's that difficult no. it's sort of I suppose it just seems unnecessary in D&D but in Traveller I can see I mean, it's sort of unnecessary in, in Traveller ultimately because you do but you do end up buying the Spinwood Marches with hundreds of planets and yeah. you never really need to do it. But I can see that in the original Traveller rules it may have seemed necessary because during a session players might hop around and you might you might run out of planets. Yeah. You might actually yeah. run out of planets and they or they've decided to go somewhere else now. That that's a bit of a problem. Um and I think as well, it, the roles that you make on the random planet generator come up with interesting results that maybe you didn't think of as a games master for how a planet might actually be. Yeah. You know, so it might have you know a very low tech level but a very high law level, you know yeah. that kind of thing. And it might it then makes you think about why that would be. Whereas I think a random dungeon, it's just. Like, oh, it's another corridor, or oh, it's another room, or oh, it turns left, or oh, it turns right. Yeah. Oh, really, you know. But, good... but as I said at the time, yeah. in in the defence of the random dungeon generator, I suppose it comes from a time when maybe people who were just kind of foraging through the <laughs> foraging through role playing as a new thing, a new concept, might have thought this is what people need. And ultimately, they don't need it, but then that's why it's there because it's a new thing, yeah. and people kind of grow up in towards how do you actually play it and yeah, what do you absolutely. do with it. So it, it's forgivable, but it's just funny 
It's just a funny thing. It just seems unnecessary now by modern standards. It doesn't seem necessary. Thank you for the question, Alan. Good answer, though. What I quite like about that question is always like, introduce the idea that somehow we'll be consistent in our thinking. Yes. I think <laughs> people shouldn't make that mistake that we are being consistent and, and should under no circumstances hold us to account for it because that would be embarrassing well, this for us, but not them. <laughs> <laughs> okay, next one. Oh, Brooklyn Varga. No, I'll roll again. <laughs> okay, this is from a friend of the uh, podcast. It's from uh, Mike Cool. So let's see. Uh, Irish leprechaun. Irish. Is there any other kind of leprechaun? Well, I've heard a Welsh one. Oh, well, you're going to do the Welsh one <laughs> again. Well, you did the Welsh accent last time. Do, do a different right. one. Irish one this time. Okay. I know what his honour means about resurrection, but I still have a fond place in my heart for it. It features in Empire of the Petal Throne as a service you could have access to if you sacrificed enough of your accumulated wealth to bring a fallen comrade back. Something that either made for party bonding or a lot of ill-feeling. I remember one GURPS brainstorm game having an intense but inclusive debate about the going rate for resurrection insurance and should professional adventurers have higher rates? What does dying twice in two months do to your no-claims bonus? And, as with hiring an assassin, the quest to find a resurrection for unlucky Clem should be a story in itself. Resurrection. Resurrection. Yeah. I felt like Terry Wogan had been resurrected then. <laughs> Very good. Um, better than the Welsh one. Oh, well, resurrection. Oh. Yeah, I mean, we do. We, I, I can, I can see the point in it, and I can see that. But I can see that it can be part of a story, yes. you know, bringing back um, a favourite character. I think yeah. it's the rarity of it, isn't it? It's the relative rarity of it. I think. It, yeah. I think where I took issue of it in um, Dungeon Master's Guide is that it seemed to be a commonplace yes. solution yes. to a problem in the game. Yes. So where the uh, games master, dungeon master, has made some kind of mistake, like yeah. overplayed his hand, mm. this is a way of kind of offering a way out. Yeah. No, I, I agree with you, and I think Michael's point is right. It can be a good thing in a story. It can be a good thing in a story, and that, you know, the resurrection of some... Uh, NPC, for example, who you think's long dead, that kind of thing can be quite exciting. Yeah. But my problem with it is a little bit like your problem. I think it's about the group dynamics because the problem with the resurrection is if you're deep in some dungeon and your 10th level fighter gets killed and you've spent years building that 10th level fighter up, it's difficult if resurrection exists and is commonplace. There's a kind of onus on the other players to get you out of the dungeon. Yeah. But that puts them in a sticky position, doesn't it? it Carrying does. a corpse around. Particularly if someone else's 10th level magic user cops it as well. And then you think, well, hang on, we've got to get both bodies out. If you don't, there's kind of the potential for recriminations. That, that kind of thing. It's the group dynamic thing with yeah. it. And also, I think it's a bit like if you were. You know, your character, your 10th level fighter gets disintegrated by a beholder. Well, he can't be resurrected, can he? Yeah. And that seems, then, then there's recriminations. I, I always think dead's dead. You know, if you're dead, 
that's it, you're dead. Because yeah. that puts an end to it. And it takes the pressure off all the other players and everybody. There, are, there, are, there is another option, though, isn't there? There is another option uh, that is used in uh, some of these indie games where actually the character uh, becomes disembodied and it can find another yeah. Um, yeah. shell to go yes. into. Yeah. I quite like that idea. The idea of downloading your character before yeah, it dies. Yeah, so, that's so. Yeah, yeah, like science fiction kind of stuff or a clone or that. Yeah. That's but that's okay. That's I, I think resurrection like that is okay as long as. But I don't like it in when it puts pressure on players or the games master or the group because there's an expectation that my character's dead. But I expect you to get me out of here in one piece and take me to some temple and get me resurrected. And of course, if they don't do that, it stops being about, you know, your character's a bit reckless, your character had some bad dice rolls, you know, that kind of thing. It becomes about, I expect you to bring me back. And if you don't, there's there's potential for ill feeling, I think, you know. Yeah, I agree. You should uh, go and visit um, the site. I keep telling people to do that. So... Stop me if I'm being uh, more of a promoting stuff. Uh, but you should go to the site to see uh, the rest of Michael's uh, contribution because there's some uh, really good stuff on there. Mm. And also his uh, encounter with uh, Louis Pulsifer. So yes, the great Louis Pulsifer. Yeah, so there's a good <laughs> story in there. So please go and see that. Next one up is uh, DM Mike. And oh, sorry about this, Mike. I'm going to do it in the style of a, an evil overlord channeling something nasty. I could comment about you guys rolling initiative with a d10. When the first edition rolls, specifies d6s, rarely d4s, but I won't. Lol. Sorry, that was like Spike Milligan. <laughs> Evil Overlord Spike Milligan. <laughs> I, t- I need some practice for these. Yeah. <laughs> do it in a Brooklyn accent. Do it in the one you can do. The Brooklyn accent. The Welsh Brooklyn accent. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't hear that. What, what was, was it? it? Repeat it. <laughs> well, what he's saying is that we made a mistake because we're rolling a D10 to roll initiative. Oh, for initiative, yeah. Yeah, and then the old style rules, it's wrong. It's a D6 in first edition. Yeah. Yeah. Does it matter? Well, I think the whole thing about rolling for initiative is a, an interesting one because we, we never, because we played a lot of RuneQuest, mm. rolling for initiative yeah. um, seemed wrong somehow. And this it comes back to this thing where I always say that it feels more like a game. Um, well, it does, it, it, I it suppose. Like it feels, yeah, yeah rolling for a, a sort of unmodified initiative unmodified by abilities or yeah surprise or anything like that seems a bit odd it's just a like you say it's just a dice roll isn't it so. yeah and all hanging on a dice roll and it can be crucial I remember mm. those um, games we played with Kevin you know sometimes the whole thing would hinge on who hits well it can do can't it if you're up against something uh, really nasty and you magic use as a fireball spell for example and you think the magic user can blast this thing before it blasts us 
um, initiative is important because you're getting that sometimes getting that first strike in is what can be the difference between life and death in, yeah. in certain big big encounters with big nasty monsters so does it make a difference what dice you make does it make it you know the range of options we're the last people to ask aren't we yeah about probability yeah <laughs> as many of our dead characters will will testify <laughs> we're the worst people when it comes to probability yeah um, yeah, I don't know. It probably doesn't, does it? It's still a dice that you roll in. I don't know why do we roll a d10? Why did we roll a d10? I, I, I think I think we roll a d10 because when we played with Kevin, we that, used to roll. that was the roll. I mean, yeah. whether does second is second edition a d10 and first edition a d6? I don't know. And D6 the fifth or, fifth edition's a d20. Mm. But but fifth edition is better in the sense that it, it is it, modified. It's modified by things, yeah. isn't it? So you feel like your character can be quicker. Uh, and get initiative by, by virtue of their abilities. Whereas in first edition, I think there are some modifiers, but in first edition, they're not as um, significant or they're not always applied. Uh, doesn't he say in his letter that Gary Gary Gygax yeah. rolled a D10? Yeah. He played with Gary Gygax at a convention and played with a D10. So yeah. there you go. There you go. It's good enough for Gary. It's good it's enough good for, for anyone, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. So, Apart from the random dungeon generator, which was good enough for Gary, but isn't good enough for us, I'm afraid. <laughs> We pick, we'll pick and choose there. <laughs> we'll politely but firmly say, no, thank you. <laughs> okay, last one. Um, here goes on the uh, table. James Mason. A James Mason impression. James Mason impression? Well, it's not a letter from James Mason. No, no. I was going to say, a letter from Beyond the Grave. It's uh, Resurrection. Resurrection. We've resurrected James Mason, of all people. So this is uh, from uh, Doc Griffiths, who's uh, he's an actual... RPG doctor. He's a doctor of RPG, isn't he? Yes, right. He's in our imagination, he is. Biggest monster manual crime is Yeti, chaotic evil. I was hoping they'd fix this version. Yetis, let's give them horns and make them chaotic evil. No, a stupid idea. In 5th edition, it's chaotic evil. Yeah. And neutral in 1st edition. Yes. Yeah, it does feel a bit odd that it's chaotic evil. In, uh, but you do get that, don't you, with alignment? This, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm a fan of alignment, um, as we've discussed before. I'm a fan of it. Um, but I suppose I'm more of a fan of it when it comes to players, as the way it motivates and constrains players. But when it comes to monsters, it becomes less of an issue, doesn't it? Because the monster is... The monster, so See, it's, I disagree. It's behaving monstrously. I disagree. Matter. I disagree. A Bigfoot. If you're gonna have a Bigfoot, Sasquatch, or mm. Yeti in your game, yeah. right? What is the point of having a Bigfoot in your game unless it's got a malevolent intent? Well, well you know, if it's neutral, it's just an animal wandering around. The big animals. Uh, yeah. Like a, yeah. Yeah. But what's the point? Why have Why have it? Well, that's. Mm, I don't. I disagree. I think that neutral monsters can be interesting. Where's the excitement in having a Sasquatch swinging his arms around at a distance? Well, the, the, yeah, but neutral's a funny alignment, isn't it? Because neutral's not, not necessarily good, but it's not evil. It, it's neutral. Uh, and, and the thing... <laughs> I get that. Well, yeah, but, but the thing with a neutral monster is that uh, it can be frightening because it can be defending its territory, it can be defending its young, it can be, you know, a, a vicious monster that, that attacks. Um, in some ways... 
to the death because if it's if it's defending its territory, it's young, it will fight to the death. Whereas an evil monster will possibly run away. But I think that so let let me put this situation right. I'm sorry to cut across you, but let me put this situation right. <laughs> you know. He cast a sleep spell on yeah. a yeti. Yeah. When it wakes up, do you kill it? How do you mean? You get your sword. Well, to be fair, if I cast a sleep spell on a vicious yeti, I'm 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 gone by the time it wakes up. I'd like to think I'd run away <laughs> before it wakes up. <laughs> but you know, you get your uh, ten foot of rope, you wrap it around the yeti, tie a good knot. You could kill it while it's asleep. So you're going to kill it, despite its neutrality. You're a good character, and you're going to kill a, a, a neutral yeti. Yeah, but in a in that way, uh, I don't know. A, a good character might kill would kill an animal for food. You know, don't know if it matters. I don't know what your point is. What's your point? My point is is that what's the point of having a monster unless it's got evil intent? Yeah, but I think that some monster, a monster that would be neutral, can. You wouldn't want all monsters to be neutral. You do want you want evil monsters. Yeah, but but I think but I think having a neutral monster can be interesting because sometimes the why relationship include it? why include it? The rela- because why include it? Why include it? Why include a big a big hairy man? Why not just have this a gorilla? This is what he's like as a games master. <laughs> Tiger Pat. You see? It's coming out now. <laughs> well but the thing is, if you had a neutral monster, the interaction between the players and the monster can be more interesting in some respects. So, for example, if you go into territory where you think, right, there's some yetis around, they defend the territory. Maybe they're kind of semi-intelligent creatures, uh, but they're quite de- they fear strangers. If one attacks you, it's pretty nasty, you know, particularly if you're a low-level character. So you've got the option of what do you do? Do you kind of try and can you negotiate with a yeti if it's semi-intelligent or of low intelligence? You've got those kind of options. Whereas a monster that's just evil, it's it's just an inevitable, we're going to fight these things, aren't we? Because if we're good and they're evil, we're going to clash. Whereas sometimes a neutral monster, whilst it's still a monster and it's still dangerous and it can still attack you and can be just as deadly as an evil one, it sometimes gives a different dimension to dealing with the monster. You see, I thought you would appreciate that because it gives... You know, it's like King Kong. To go back to your King Kong example, the greatest monster ever. Is King Kong evil? I'd say King Kong's neutral. King Kong's like a big yeti who climbs up the Empire State Building. But what makes King Kong interesting as a monster is his neutrality. Because there's that thing, isn't there? You know, he's frightening, he kills people, but everyone feels sad when they kill him and he falls off. Because he's neutral. Right. So well, so I think, I think there's, a, there's... I'm not saying all monsters should be neutral. You've got to have evil monsters. And sometimes interested to have good monsters, but having a monster that's neutral can be an interesting aspect and can add a different dynamic to the way the players deal with that monster. I'm going to I'm going to shout out some yetis. I want you to tell me what their alignments are. Okay, Bigfoot and the Hendersons. Um, Bigfoot and the Hendersons. I suppose he's he's kind of good, isn't he? Yeah, he's a good alignment. Maybe they can pick their alignment, just like anyone else. That's always the thing with, with monsters as well, isn't it? Can they pick their alignment? What about the Yeti in uh, Doctor Who? Yeti in Doctor Who? No, I don't know. Massive hips, Every, mm, uh, has it? Yeah, yeah. Has to go through doors sideways. They're kind of neutral. Right, they're neutral. 
Neutral's a funny alignment, isn't it? Because a neutral character can be, can do bad things, can't they? I mean, I, I always had, I always struggled with druids in first edition D and D because the druid character class, although it's a bit like a cleric, it's like a better version of a cleric. But they have to be neutral, don't they, in first edition? Yeah. Uh, and I always struggled with that because neutrals is a funny alignment, isn't it? I mean, how do you play it? You know, do you just just say on on any given situation, I'm afraid I'm I don't have a view on this. Yeah. <laughs> I'm neutral. Yeah. I'm, I'm staying out of it. <laughs> so a bit like uh, Nick Clegg. Um, <laughs> yes, Nick Clegg the Druid. Yeah. <laughs> Nick Clegg the Yeti. The Yeti. Oh yeah. Have yeah. you ever seen a Bigfoot? Uh, no, no, I haven't either. I've seen big feet. I've got quite big feet, but but I've not seen a big foot. No, yeah. I suppose what's interesting about the yeti, if it, if it's comparable to Bigfoot, I suppose it's one of the only monsters in Monster Manual that that some people think actually exists. I mean, most of the monsters in there. Are there any other monsters in there that people think exist? Ghosts, I suppose. Some people think yeah, ghosts yeah. exist, don't they? Yeah, it's one of the few monsters in there. Some people might think giant badges exist. Yeah. But they're just big badges, they're not giant badges. Right, that's it, there isn't any more. That's the end of the Advanced Dungeons and Dragons file. I'll just collect all the stuff and put it back on the shelf. Uh, there's still lots to go at on the uh, on the shelf of the great library of tabletop RPGs. We haven't nearly covered everything about Dungeons and Dragons. We're not even uh, touched the supplements. It's certainly one that we're going to have to come back to on a later episode. This episode has been a kind of therapy for us, getting reacquainted with Dungeons and Dragons after all the turmoil of our early years playing the game. I want to say a great big thank you to Rick and Tim for their contribution. If you want to know more about the time when the Amateur Adventurers and the Old Scrolls got together then go to thegrognardfiles.com and you'll see the write-up of uh, the adventure there. The adventures of Sticky Foot the Gnome will go down. It'll go down. Tim will also be a dungeon master at the first ever Grog meet in Manchester. He's running a D&D game there. It's on the 12th of November 2006. There's still a few tickets available on a waiting list for cancellations. We're running a Patreon campaign to support the development of the podcast. It's a tip jar and I've been really pleased um, with how that's gone and kind of surprised by the generosity of uh, people. So thank you for that. It has helped us to develop additional projects uh, such as an annual fanzine which we're busily writing at the moment. That's going to be launched at Grogmeet. I'll also be running uh, online games for patrons using Roll20. The first one is going to be The Sea Cave, which is a previously unpublished adventure for RuneQuest by Greg Stafford. On the grognardfiles.com site, you'll see an unboxing video of the RuneQuest classic Kickstarter uh, kit which uh, arrived this month from New Chaosium. It's great. Thank you to all of our patrons for their support. We've got some new contributors uh, this time, so I want to say thank you to Marshall Riser and Justin Hill, the author. Um, they've pledged at the three and a half dollar level. 
which means that they're honorary members of the Armchair Adventures Club and they'll get a hard copy of the fanzine posted internationally. Thank you. We've also got some new $5 a month contributors. Thank goodness it's in dollars because uh, currently in the UK, uh, summer of uh, 2016, we're trading with goats and uh, chickens. Um, So we need all the dollars we need, we can get. Uh, Right, so um, I'm just going to get my dice and um, I'm going to roll on this table because to reward the uh, top level subscribers, I roll on a table from uh, a feature game and give them a virtual gift. This time, I thought I'd uh, reach down the unearthed arcana and uh, roll on the magical rings table. That's uh, table 3 to C, uh, if you're interested. Okay, I'll just pick it up. Whoa, I can already feel things becoming unbalanced as I pick it up. Okay. Okay, first up is uh, Garol Carla. And uh, I'm going to get him. And he's got 15. Um, so, Gerald, you've got a, a ring of blinking. And I think uh, Richard Gere's got one of those as well. Okay, thank you very much, uh, Gerald. Okay, next up is Frank F. Turfler. And uh, he's upgraded his pledge to $5 a month. And he's got a ring of jumping. So... You'll be able to uh, pogo through your neighbourhood. Thank you very much, Frank. Okay, next up is uh, Rick Knott. He's uh, upgraded too. Rick's uh, long been a supporter of the Grognard file. So uh, here we go, Rick. Let's see what you get. Ah, you've got a, a seven. And you've got a, a ring of animal friendship. So uh, you can talk to the badgers, even the big ones. Thanks a lot, Rick. Well, that's everything. Until next time. So, when we meet up next time, I want you to grab as many D6s as you can. Search the house. You're going to need them. Because next time, it's Tunnels and Trolls. If you're listening to these as they're going out, you might notice that it'll be a little bit later because it's the holiday season. And I've got a, a few weeks away so um, until then, I'm Dirt the Dice at gmail.com. Adios, amigos.